0: Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking at the last verses in the chapter, verses 9 through 15. And here, remember, Paul is instructing young Timothy at this uh, uh, as a as a pastoral um, officer there in the church at Ephesus. And uh, he's giving him instructions about different things. And this in particular is uh, how to conduct um, the, the the topic is the conduct of women in the church. This role of women in the church is a volatile topic in our current culture, not only because of the feminist movement, but because of the influence of that movement on churches and even on believers who develop a secular worldview. Wayne Grudem and John Piper have a book that exposes what they call evangelical feminism, that is feminism that's within the church. Its title, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I've mentioned that book before, and uh, it was published in 1991, Uh, a new edition I I see just came out in 2021, I look forward to reading that. But John Shelby uh, Spong was a liberal theologian who passed away uh, September 12th of 2021. He was a bishop of the Episcopal Church in Newark, New, New Jersey. Uh, he had that position from 1979 to about 2000. When he retired, he began uh, lecturing in many different venues uh, at Harvard and some of the Ivy League schools. Uh, and in those, like about 200 lectures a year, and people would come. There were standing room only in those lectures. Uh, he rejected traditional Christian doctrines. He argued for LGBTQ rights, He was one of the first American bishops to ordain women into the clergy. He was the first to ordain openly homosexual men into the ministry. He preached that the Bible was biased against women. He said, quote, Both the religious and ethical directives of the Bible were formulated out of a patriarchal understanding of life, with the interests of men being primary. Then he asked, Are we willing to return to these destructive definitions of both men and women? Well, after 40 years now of people listening to these kinds of lectures, it's no wonder that we see so much gender confusion in our culture and find that people cannot even define what a man and what a woman is. We need to go to the one who created man and woman and ordained the institutions of marriage, the home, and family, so that we can find out his definitions and his designs for these institutions. God is the one who made us. God is the one who has the right to tell us how to conduct our lives in those roles. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses nine through 15, we find God's instructions for the conduct of women in the church. The title of the message tonight is women professing godliness. That's a phrase that's found in verse 10. Let's read the entire section, 9 through 15, and then we'll unfold it into about four points. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works let the woman learn in silence with all subjection but i suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in silence for adam was formed then eve first formed then eve and adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived was in the transgression notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So let's uh, look through the passage now and learn how women professing godliness come to church. First of all, women professing godliness come to church carefully. Last Sunday uh, morning, we learned that um, when men pray publicly uh, in the church service, there are three attitudes that they're supposed to have. We saw those in verse 8. Uh, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. That meant they are to have have the attitude where there's no sin, no known sin recognized in their lives. Make sure that you're right with God. Without wrath, that was when you pray, don't pray with anger. Uh, Don't pray with your own personal agenda against someone else. And without doubting, no doubt. So no sin, no anger, no doubt. Pray with faith believing. Don't be uh, vacillating between whether God can do something or not. Don't be two-faced. Now, verse 9 begins, in like manner also. Just as men have these specific instructions about how to pray in the church service, so women are to have an attitude of caution as to how they behave in the church service. There are a lot of casual worshipers today. People go to church much like they would a baseball game. The last time I was at a baseball game, I saw men in suits. I figured they were skipping work and coming to the game, or they were uh, maybe scouting uh, some of the players. Uh, I also saw a man wearing argyle socks and shorts that were also argyle pattern and a sweater Uh, that was plaid. And he attracted my attention. I mean, it was just one of those things. Most people go to a game in jeans and a T-shirt and uh, supporting their local team. There's no real dress code at the ballpark. As long as people are dressed, they can usually get in. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert writes about uh, this this verse, verse 9, slovenliness in dress and appearance is unbecoming a Christian woman. Lenski says, Women are to dress in good taste when they prepare to attend church. Now, we don't turn away people who come to the door because of the way they dress and say, well, you're not dressed appropriately for church. But we do recognize as believers that we ought to come reverently. We ought to let God know that we're, we're coming to worship him and that he's worth our preparation, uh, not only of the external, but also of the heart. And so we come Carefully, thoughtfully, reverently. Second point, we'll continue on with verse nine. Women professing godliness come to church modestly. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. Four distinct um, terms here. Adorned in modest apparel. The words adorn and modest are from the same Greek word and it's uh, it's kosmos. It's what we get our word cosmetics from. Um, It's a word that describes how God created the universe. He set everything in order, an orderly fashion. And that's really at the root meaning of this word. Um, When makeup is put on, uh, when hair is fixed, when clothing is arranged, there is carefulness to make it look just right. How many husbands here tonight have their wives at least uh, give them advice on what they ought to be wearing? Oh, not very many. Okay. Um, ladies, we need your help. In fact, if you'll look around at the men who did not raise their hands, you'll see that we need your help. Um, Hebert points out that the word here for apparel may have a wider meaning than simply dress and may denote the deportment exhibited externally, whether in look, manner, or dress. And so Paul is saying when you come to, come to church, nothing should be distracting, nothing should be out of place. But it also has to deal with not just what you have on, but how you uh, conduct yourselves. Um, he's pointing out that it's possible to dress modestly and act immodestly. The word here for shamefacedness it literally means to look down. Have you ever gotten embarrassed for somebody else and you just kind of divert your eyes? You look down. And the word is found also in Hebrews 12:28, this shamefacedness. And there it's translated with the word reverence. And it gives us an idea of what shamefacedness means. It's a, it's a downlooking, It's a reverence coming into the presence of God. The context in Hebrews 12, 28 is connected with an attitude, that of godly fear. This shamefacedness means that godly women are to come to church with discretion, not wanting to cause any distraction in the worship service. We also have, uh, along with shamefacedness, sobriety. This is a word, uh, also the last uh, word in the chapter, verse 15, you'll see it at the very last word, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. It's used in Acts chapter 26 and verse 25. And, And I often give usages because usage determines what something means. And so let's get a, an idea of, of this context in Acts a little bit different than, than what we're talking about coming to church, but it gives us the idea of what sobriety means. Because of preaching the gospel, the Jews were trying to kill Paul. And he was rescued by the Roman soldiers. Felix and Festus had him put in prison, uh, basically to protect him from being killed. And now he appears before King Agrippa. And Festus said with a loud voice, Acts 26, 25, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And that's our same word for sobriety. He recognized that this was a a crucial time in the life of Agrippa, not as much He's sober because he's standing in front of a king who can, who can uh, punish him or let him be killed. But because of Agrippa's indecision to accept Christ, remember Agrippa answered almost, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And so this was something that was heavy, that was weighty, that was something that caused sobriety in Paul's testimony. The seriousness about eternal decisions are made when the gospel is preached It's the attitude that affects how women come to church. Ellicott defines sobriety as the well-balanced state of mind resulting from habitual self-restraint. So a godly woman would be sobered to think for a moment that she, by her demeanor or her dress, had come into an assembly and caused someone else to turn away from Christ, to be distracted from the gospel. Third, women professing godliness come to church displaying good works. Paul mentions some, some distracting elements that were characteristic of, of the women in that culture. And when we read this, we say, Boy, I don't understand what that was all about. But I guarantee, if you had walked into one of their assemblies, you would have seen it and you would have exactly known exactly what he's saying. He says in the uh, second half of verse 9, Not with broided hair, that's braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array but which becometh women professing godliness with good works? A woman professing godliness never wants to be the center of attention. Not with braided hair. Those were styles that uh, overtly attract attention. Not with gold and pearls. Sometimes they would actually rent jewelry in those days to make it look like they owned more than they did to make an impression. Not with costly array, expensive clothing. These are the ways that women in the first century would attract attention to themselves. It was fashionable to to braid their hair, even with with uh, strands of gold and silver and pearls woven right into the hair. I can almost think of the the old beehive style, where it was just piled up, and you sit in front of in back of them in any venue, you just can't see what's going on. I think that's probably what it looked like in that first century church. Uh, so a woman professing godliness doesn't want to be the center of attention; she is more concerned with her works than with her looks. Instead of the outward showy items of culture, Paul mentions good works, and then before that that phrase good works he inserts this parenthetical statement what does he say which becometh women professing godliness now the word professing is a word that's used for making a promise it's a compound word that includes the idea of being a messenger it's epiangelos and so it's an angel or a messenger so she, she is not necessarily one who stands behind a pulpit and brings a message, but by her very works she is preaching a message, her devotion to Christ. Um, the word becoming there is interesting too. The, that are becoming, it means to tower up, literally. So she is not towering up her hair or her her uh, her dress to attract attention. She's towering up these good works, and people notice those things, and they speak loudly by her very behavior, by the way uh, she comes in. She is preaching a sermon that probably is more powerful than anything that's said in the pulpit. All our words are empty if our lives don't back up the good news. This is not a passage that forbids braiding hair or forbids pearls or jewelry or nice clothing. It's a passage that warns against coming to church to show off. It all has to do with motive. When you do, when you come to church and have attracted attention to yourself, see my beauty. You have vied with the very beauty of Christ that we've come to preach, to see, to love. And you've distracted someone's attention from hearing the message by attracting attention to yourself. D. Edmund Hebert writes, the true source of the Christian woman's adornment is that of inner character. Christian women may find their best and richest adornment in that beauty of character achieved through good works. Good works react on character and create that spiritual adornment which is the real glory of the Christian woman. When she uses this as her chief adornment, her apparel will be in keeping with her Christian character. Lastly, in verses 11 through 15, we see that women professing godliness come to church desiring to learn. Verse 11, let the woman learn let her receive instruction. In the first century in Judaism and in the Greek culture, they didn't esteem women highly. They didn't want them to learn. Here, Paul is saying that they not only have a right, but have an obligation to learn the scriptures. When biblical Christianity is introduced into different cultures around the world, there is actually a liberation from the oppressive attitudes toward women. So, the privilege, let her learn. The restrictions, there are three. She's to learn in silence, in subjection, and not usurping authority over the man. That doesn't mean that women, this, this, uh, that she's to learn in silence, doesn't mean that she's not to talk. It means that she's quiet in her demeanor. Some argue that she can preach or teach as long as her attitude is meek and quiet. Verse 12 specifies that she's not to exercise authority over the man. So, silence. And then subject. The word there means to line up under. I've said it before, that submission is something that's voluntary. It's never something that's forced upon a person. It's a choice. The Bible teaches that there's an order of headship in the home, in the family. 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. That is one of the best verses that that I can find in the scriptures that teaches what headship means. This submission doesn't mean that the one to whom you submit is, is more worthy or has greater value or more importance than you. Why? We see here in this very verse that Christ is submissive to the will of the Father. And Christ said, I and my Father are one. They were co-equal. There was no difference in worth or in value. But Jesus chose to submit to the will of the Father so that salvation's plan could be completed. Some argue that there's equality after salvation from Galatians 3.28. That verse says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither is there male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So after salvation, what is he saying? He's he's saying we are all equal on equal footing when it comes to being spiritually equal. He's not talking about the roles changing. Roles of men and women do not change after salvation. One writer says, there's no more basis for abolishing the order between man and woman in the church from Galatians 3.28 than from abolishing an order between believing parents and children or believing citizens and rulers. When you go out of church and you're a believer and the policeman that pulls you over is still a believer, you're still, he's still your authority when he writes that ticket. Um, this This is speaking about a spiritual equality. So don't let someone use Galatians 3.28 to say there's no difference between men and women. So she's to be subject based on the, the, the passages and on headship in scripture. The third is she's not to usurp authority over the man. As some might argue, and go to, over to Acts chapter 18 and verse 26, where Aquila and Priscilla were training Apollos in the things of scripture. The verb form here, not to teach, indicates that this is an ongoing teaching position. Remember, these are instructions for the local church, for the assembly. She might have had on occasion taught, but you wouldn't have a permanent position in the church, not teaching when men are present. The reason for the restriction is given. She's second to man in created order. We see that in verses 13 and 14. The principle of submission was not a result of the fall. God ordained the order of the home before or at creation. And so Adam is thereby held responsible for the fall, not Eve. Uh, In Romans 5.12, Wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. So the reason for the restriction is this created order. Man was created first, and then Eve. Now, we get to verse 15, which is a very difficult verse, uh, speaking of salvation here. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Let me just go through a variety of views that have been proposed for what this verse means. Some say she shall be saved uh, physically, that her life will be spared when she's giving birth. Well, we know that some are not. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Another thought is that she's saved spiritually by bringing up children who live for Christ. That was actually the view of Chrysostom in the fourth century. That view, however, makes salvation um, available through works. If she brings up her children correctly, then she merits salvation. So that one's out. Well, the third view, she'll be saved even though she must bear children. So she's linked to salvation in spite of the punishment of childbearing. Most women would not call having children any kind of a punishment. Some might, but that's that's a view. I think the, the last two are probably the best. That is, she shall be saved by means of childbearing, that one day there would be a Messiah that was born of woman, and he would be the Savior. And so we have that explanation of salvation, which clearly fits the context, and it would be through the Lord Jesus Christ who would come through the seed of the woman. The, the last view, a little bit uh, uh, more, uh, a minor view, she's saved or pers- uh, preserved from the stigma of the fall. Um, One writer argues, the rescue, the delivery, the freeing of women from the stigma of having led the race into sin happens when they bring up a righteous seed. So godly women provide a wonderful testimony when they follow God's design in the church. I am so glad that we have a church where the examples of godly women are several. You can look around and you can see how godly women come to church And it's a great joy to be a part of Grace Baptist Church for that reason. I was reading an illustration about a woman who didn't think that she had accomplished much for the Lord. The Scottish Scottish preacher, Ian McLaren, tells of a woman in his church. And as they were talking together, she started to wipe her tears. And And McLaren asked, what's wrong? And she said, sometimes I feel like I've done so little for Jesus. When I was a wee girl... The Lord spoke to my heart, and I surrendered to him. I wanted so much to live for him, but I feel I just haven't done anything. What have you done with your life, he asked. Oh, nothing, just nothing. I've washed dishes, cooked three meals a day, taken care of my children. You know, everything a mother does. That's all I've done. McLaren sat back in his chair, and he asked, where are your boys? Oh, you know. I named them all after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know where Mark is. You ordained him. He went to China. He's learned the language, and now he's able to minister to the people in the name of the Lord. Where's Luke? McLaren asked. Well, You know where he is because you sent him out, and I had a letter from him the other day. He's in Africa, and he says that a revival has broken out at his mission station. And Matthew, he asked, well, he's with his brother in China, and they're working together. And John, well, he's 19, and he came to me last night to say that God has laid Africa on his heart. McLaren looked at the elderly saint and said, Your life has been wasted, you say. Yes, it's been wasted. You've been cooking and mopping and washing, but I would like to see the reward when you are called home to heaven. May God bless our homes and fill our church with women professing godliness. Now, the tendency for most of us is to say, in fact, right before the the text was mentioned, well, this is about the women tonight. I'll just sit back and listen. It has nothing to do with me. When you let the word of God speak, do you listen with the intent to obey? I think the application here should be for us all. Do you come to church and say, well, I already have my mind made up. I'll just sit through this. I can disagree with what's being said. He's been wrong before. I'm not gonna let it affect the way I'm living. James has a great warning for us. He says that if you hear something and you don't do anything about what you hear, you're deceiving yourself. James 1.22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. John tells us that doing what God wants us to do results in happiness or blessedness. John thirteen seventeen. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And so as you come to the scriptures, as you come into a church service, I hope your heart is always open to what the Lord would teach. God may be speaking you, in, to you in other areas of your life. It has nothing to do with the text we looked at tonight. And you've been avoiding his voice. You've thought, as the title of the sermon was announced, I, I can breathe easier. It has nothing to do with me. But the Holy Spirit may have been dealing with you about something else. And you know that you've been wrestling with this for year, for weeks. Uh, you know what God wants you to do. You know the decision you need to make. And so I'd encourage you, be open to what the Lord wants in your life, whether it's this topic that we've discussed or something else. Be obedient to him. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who works in each of our hearts and uses the word of God to instruct us. And I pray that every time that we open it, every time that we hear it, we would want to hear with the intent of obeying what we hear. And we ask and invite your spirit tonight to work in our lives to change us to be more like our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.